Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, as Ryan said, Merry Christmas to you all. And um, for those of you who are new uh, to Covenant, welcome, a warm welcome to you. So good to be together this morning. Um, this is the, the fourth Sunday of Advent, falls in a kind of a weird place this year on Christmas Eve, but we have spent our four Sundays looking at the names of Isaiah 9-6. So we've read that Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 passage every week, and we've looked at verse 6 where Isaiah tells us that the Messiah will be known by these four names. Those names are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so the question we've been asking is, how does Jesus demonstrate in the Gospels his own worthiness to be called by those names? Um, How does he relate to us through those names, and how do we relate to him through those names as well? This morning is the fourth name, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent, so we'll look at Prince of Peace this morning. Um, You may know the word shalom, that is the word for peace in Hebrew, so it's our Prince of Shalom. And what we find here is that God is telling us that the king, remember Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus was born, that this king that God is sending, this prince, will not seek the greatness of his kingdom in war, as almost all princes were prone to do. But he will seek the greatness of his kingdom instead through the expansion of his own peace. For our young disciples this morning, a question for you. We're going to attack this pretty clearly at the beginning of the sermon. But just a, a simple question I want you to be able to answer as you leave. Where does Jesus say that peace comes from? Where does he say that peace ultimately comes from, and to where or to whom do we go to find that peace? If you're able now to ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word, we're going to read from John's gospel. In this particular context, Jesus is saying farewell. It's the upper room, if you're familiar with John's gospel. The Last Supper's already happened. He is saying farewell to his disciples. And in that farewell, as you'll see, he issues to them this strong word of peace. John chapter 14, verses 25 through 31. You can follow along with me in your order of worship there. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when It does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that um, even as we've read here about your spirit, Jesus, given to help your followers understand and rejoice and believe that even as we read your words now that you would give your spirit to us to that same end, that we may rejoice and believe 
and that our hearts would be free from trouble. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, this is just the context here. This is Jesus' final night with his disciples, the 12 really, and these are, these are his closest friends. He is preparing them for his departure or his death in response to that preparation. Those friends are understandably very distraught. I just want you to remember they've been with him for three years. They've wagered their lives on him. They've left practically everything for him. In verse 27, implies that their hearts are troubled. That is to say they are anxious, they are stricken by grief, they are overwhelmed, and they are afraid. So if anything we could say about these close followers of Jesus at this time, they are very far from peace. And Jesus says to them, my peace I give to you. So two things I want us to look at from our passage this morning. First, we're gonna look at Jesus as the promised Prince of Peace. Jesus as the Prince who accomplishes, who secures our peace, he is the Prince that we need most. He gives the peace that we need most. How does that happen? And second, the peace of the Prince. So how do we experience that peace? It is one thing to know that that peace has been secured, one thing to say that it exists. It's very much another thing to access it in our hearts and to actually experience that peace coming into our lives. And so the Prince of Peace, and then secondly, the peace of the Prince. Look with me first at the uh, the Prince of Peace. I'm gonna say those wrong the whole day, I think. Uh, Verse 27, let's look back at verse 27 together. Put your eyes there, Jesus says there, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give it to you. So I just want to start with a simple question this morning, not to insult your intelligence, but I want you to put your eyes on the page there, and kids, I'd ask you, directly from what we just read, where does Jesus tell us that peace comes from? He says there, my peace I give to you. So what Jesus tells us here, tells his disciples originally, is that peace comes from him. And I just want to point out the obvious here, that according to Jesus, peace does not come from inside of us. It does not come from us looking deep within ourselves or sorting our thoughts or even trying to get a hold of our emotions. Some of that is good. But the peace that Jesus is offering comes from outside of us. It comes to us as a gift, as something given, and it comes to us from someone else who has it, belonging to him. He is the giver. And I just want to point that out because this very much is a princely dynamic. A prince was meant to be the benefactor of his people. He is the one who has, the one who gives, the one who blesses, the one who takes his benefits and administers those benefits to those who belong to him. And so Jesus here is making a princely claim. He has the peace that his followers so desperately need. And so how does Jesus give that peace? How does he exercise grace in that way as a prince? Well, the first thing we learn here is that Jesus's peace will not be given in the same way that what? That the world gives peace. Now we could talk about that generally this morning, but it makes a lot more sense to think about this in its immediate context. At the time that Jesus is making this statement, much of the world was under the authority of Rome. You may know that. And the Roman Empire at that time had secured a profound measure of political stability. 
It was actually known as the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. That's Latin for Roman peace. That Roman peace was declared to be a miracle because there had never been such an expansive stability for such a long time in history. However, if you were to drill down into that miraculous peace, you would find that it wasn't all that peaceful at all. Uh, Still lots of border wars, there were tribal fighting all over, all manner of oppression throughout the empire. And the bottom line here is that that peace was secured by way of the sword. So even the Roman peace, this Pax Romana, had leveraged the stuff that we would typically say destroys peace. Violence, revenge, betrayal, intimidation. And they used all of those weapons to keep a lot of different kinds of people in check. And that was how the world gave peace. And by the way, that was exactly how many in Israel at that time thought the Messiah would bring peace as well. So many Jews thought that the peace of Israel would come by a warrior king who would take up the sword on their behalf and do what? He would destroy their enemies. One of the great disappointments that people had in Jesus during the three years that he ministered was that he was not the military zealot that they had hoped for. The world gives peace primarily by the sword. And how would Jesus give it? Well, certainly not that way. Remember, he is preparing his disciples for these coming hours where he will walk into suffering. Well, he will offer himself in death without protest, where he will hand himself over to his enemies. Jesus will not give his peace by the sword. He will give his peace by falling under the sword. And that's a really important lesson. It's not just Jesus being a pacifist. When Jesus does this, he believes that his death will actually accomplish something, that it will do something. And so in verse 28, he says what? His death will return him to the Father, to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. But I want you to look at verse 30 as the key to the peace that Jesus gives. Look at verse 30 there with me. What does he say? He says, I will talk, I will no longer talk much with you, For the ruler, read that as another prince, for the ruler, the prince of this world is coming. And who is that prince? Well, it's the same prince who has been at work, for example, in John's gospel through Judas Iscariot when John tells us in chapter 13, verse 27, that the devil entered into him. That prince has already been at work through betrayal, through lies, through injustice, through hostility. That prince is the one who is defined by the sword. And when Jesus says that he, that prince, the devil is coming, he's not talking about that ambiguously. He is talking specifically about the event of his own death on the cross. Because that is when this prince will display his power. That's the Super Bowl. It is the confrontation. It is two princes. It is one battle that will all culminate in Jesus' death. And what Jesus is saying here is that in that moment, the hope of that prince, the prince of the world, the hope of the devil is that Jesus' death will prove Jesus' failure. It will prove his weakness. It will prove his collapse. It will prove that the devil has a justifiable claim on him because Jesus will become a curse in his moment of judgment. It will prove 
the devil's triumph. And so what does Jesus say at the end of verse 30? He says, he, the devil, that prince, has no claim on me. Why? Verse 31, because I do what the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. When we just stop there, that is so important. The devil has no claim on him, but this is the claim of Jesus. I do what the Father commanded me, and everyone will know publicly that I love the Father. And what that means is that the weapon that Jesus holds when those two princes meet, the weapon that Jesus holds when he does battle with the devil, that weapon is not a sword, it's not his power and glory, it's not the access that he rightfully has to a legion of warring angels, the weapon that Jesus will wield in that confrontation will be his perfect obedience and sonship and love for the Father. And Jesus, you have to see this, is staking everything on that claim. So that when he dies, he can cash in that claim and say, this is my claim. My obedience to the Father, my love for the Father, my righteousness in the Father's sight, this is my claim and with it, I can pay the cost required for sinners, for my enemies, to have peace with God. I will use that claim to cover the expense of the world's sin. And whether you believe it or not that, this morning, that really is the peace you need most. You, what you need to know this morning, every morning, is that your warfare with God has ended that that hostility and that enmity has been put down. That you don't have to justify yourself in his sight. And that every morning when you get up, you stand in his favor and in his peace. And the key to that peace is that Jesus has an immutable, a proven, a secure claim to the love of God. And as your prince, that is your claim as well. It is the claim that Jesus gives to you, and there is no difference in the strength, the legality, the permanence of his claim to that love. That is the kind of claim that you have to that love this morning as well. Listen to me, it does not mean that your life will be easy. Do not read peace as easy. Peaceful doesn't mean easy. But in that claim, you can be sure that you belong to a kingdom whose final harvest will be shalom, will be righteousness and shalom. And Jesus is the only prince. He is the only prince who has that claim. Second, how do you experience that peace in your life right now? That's what the disciples need most, working that peace deep down into them. Two things I want to point out here. The first is this. To experience Jesus' peace, we need to understand him more. To experience the peace of Jesus, you and I need to understand Jesus more. We need to learn. We need to be taught. We need to know him more deeply. And that is the point of verses 25 through 26. It's really the theme of the whole passage. The lack of peace of the disciples comes from their failure to really understand what in the world is going on. Now here's what's interesting. So these guys that are with Jesus, 12 of them, 
Something radically happens to all but one, to Judas. Something radically happens to all of them after Jesus dies. And here's their story, and I want you to think about their story with me because it is extremely revealing. So if you read the Gospels, these disciples constantly fail to understand Jesus. I mean, it's almost embarrassing. Um, If you read their story in the Gospels, you will think at some point, if I were Jesus, about a year in, I would have started all over. It's uh, it's not me, it's you. It's It's not coaching, it's talent. Let's just scrub the deck and start over. At the end of the gospel, after three years, after all the miracles and all the sermons and all the VIP access they had, these guys are still absolutely blind to the point that Jesus' ministry, his work, his obedience, his redemption, that it will all culminate in his suffering and death. That is in large part what's destroying their peace here. They just don't get it. Now think about that and then consider this. Those same guys wrote the New Testament. They gave you the same John whose heart was troubled, who feared, who abandoned Jesus, who ran away when Jesus died. He is the guy we now rely on to understand who Jesus is. And these same disciples who again ran away and hid, who were cowards, who huddled together without peace in an empty room until a few of Jesus' female followers told them the tomb was empty. Those same guys would soon afterward become the very ones who would fearlessly, courageously, boldly launch the mission of Jesus into the Mediterranean world. They would suffer for him and all of them would end up dying for him. So just, that's a huge gap between who they are now and who they will become, it is a huge gap between fear and confidence, between fear and peace. What in the world happened to them? Verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything I've said to you. That is exactly what happened. You see, Jesus ascended to the throne and he poured out his spirit on them and all that they had heard him say The Spirit calls them not only to remember all that, but to actually understand it. And so they began to understand what the death of Jesus meant for them and for the world. They began to understand the ways of Jesus, the virtues of Jesus with which he loved others. They began to understand that they were actually even now seated with him in the heavenlies. They began to understand that they were seated with him, that they had a mission for him. They understood his claim, his power, his forgiveness, his glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit, that gap in their understanding closed and they were radically changed men. Their understanding, their deep understanding of Jesus gave them a confidence, a boldness, it gave them peace, and it's that understanding into which we now have access through their words and through that same spirit at work in us. Listen to me, it is the word that gives you Jesus. (laughs) Um, This gives you his peace. It is the spirit at work through the word that gives you Jesus, that gives you peace. You have to understand him here. And you need these words to be so hidden in you that they become living and active inside. The voice of your prince constantly reshapes and renews your mind. So to have that peace, we have to understand him more. Second, we need to love him more. 
Finally, look at me at verse 28. Jesus says to his disciples there, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you if you loved me. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. That statement of the Father's greatness just means that where the Father is in his unhindered glory, it's a greater place than where Jesus currently is in his humiliation. And Jesus says that if they really loved him, if his disciples really loved him, then they would be happy for him. If they really loved him, they would be more concerned for his joy than they are currently for their loss. So that as it stands now, their lack of peace is actually an index of their own self-centeredness. They're only thinking about themselves, only thinking about their own pain and him going away. What should they be thinking? Jesus, I am so happy for you. Here you are going to your glory, you're going home where you belong, and because I love you more than anything else, I will rejoice in the joy that lies before you. My own pain is far less important than the joy of my master. And that is a hard word. Especially for those who are grieving. And yet it's a challenge, it's a call, that we should care more about the joy of our prince than we do the trouble in our own hearts. We should love him more than ourselves. And I absolutely don't think that Jesus means that grief is not an appropriate and godly experience and suffering. Blessed are those, he says, who mourn. But a love for Jesus always holds two things together. On one hand, love holds onto the joy of Jesus, the joy of those who belong to him, the joy of those who are with him in that glory. And on the other hand, it holds the sadness of our own experience as we all still live at some distance from the fullness of that joy. We hold those two things together. But maybe, what I'm telling you this morning, maybe they don't function as scales we just hold in balance. Remember that love takes us outside of ourselves. That's the love of Jesus for us. It took him outside of himself to us. And so maybe we should hope that our love for Jesus, as we grow in our love for him, the joy of our master, that joy would raise a little higher than what is in our hearts. That joy would grow a little stronger and that joy would even situate our tears in the triumph of our prince. To be sure, godly grief is not no grief. Godly grief just doesn't allow grief to become our world, doesn't become all-consuming. Godly grief points us to another world, a world where the son really has returned to the father. It's a world of joy. And in that world where our prince reigns, the world to which we really belong, it is that world that we actually serve right now until we see him face to face. If that world has a hold of your heart, if that world has a hold of your heart, then you really will experience some measure of the peace that the Apostle Paul says transcends all understanding. The prince has loved you, so we love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray by your spirit's power that you would cause us to understand 
that you would bring to remembrance those things we need to remember. And Lord, you would call us to abide in the joy of our master. We love you, and we recognize this morning we love you because you first loved us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantpres.com.